0: Hello, welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I am joined by my very good friend and guest host, Khaleesi, and our guest for today is Peter Friedrich, a freelance journalist who specializes in current and historical affairs of South Asia and a focus on Hindu nationalism. He is an acclaimed author and writer of books such as Sikh Caucus, India at a Crossroads, and his most recent, Saffron America. Peter, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, and I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: So, I do want to give a little bit of background for our um, listeners, and also myself. Uh, what? How did you become uh, in kind of infatuated or or involved in India in particular?
1: Well, infatuated. I, I, I haven't heard that one before. I'm fascinated. <laughs> I've heard. Um, I would probably, for the sake of uh, PR, uh, pick more like um, uh, devoted uh, to to the issue. Um, it's a long story, um, and at this point, uh, the reason that um, I'm I'm so entrenched in the issue uh, has a lot to do with uh, just you know I become so entangled with it. Um, um, my name is so deeply connected to it. Uh, basically, everybody that I interact with on a day to day basis is Indian origin um, and uh, if even to at this point have uh, become um, a de facto banned uh, from the country of India uh, a couple of years ago I was named in a press conference by uh, the Delhi police and uh, so I've, I've become uh, rather inextricably entangled with with the issue um, but um it, it began um about uh, 17 years ago. So I'm going on almost two decades of engagement with um issues related to India, which have from the origin of it been primarily focused from, from what I'm doing, primarily focused on issues of human rights in India, um and, and um then South Asia as well, but with a real emphasis on India, considering that um, India constitutes the vast bulk of the South Asian region. I um, encountered, chance encounter, uh, some people who were Indian Americans, uh, immigrants to uh, to my country, and um, who were involved in trying to raise awareness about uh, particular uh, issues at that time related to um, what's known as encounter killings uh, by by Indian police, which is like uh, which is like a staged uh, staged murder uh, of, of of a civilian uh, by Indian police, which was a big deal uh, at that time, still is. Uh, also trying to raise awareness um, about uh, issues from the past, uh, such as the uh, 1984 Sikh genocide, which occurred in Delhi. Um, and, um, so along the way, um, as I encountered these people, um, and, um, began learning about these issues that, uh, were near and dear to their hearts, I started to meet people, um, who were, um, in California where I grew up, uh, who had been victims of some of these atrocities. They, they, been survivors of the nineteen eighty four Sikh genocide, or they were the children, for instance, of uh, human rights advocates in India who'd actually been uh, been murdered, or um, they'd been um, in custody in India in the past and and tortured in custody, and I began um, from there at their invitation to really research these issues and and read about India and and the history of both current and and past of India, and then uh, progressively started writing about it. Um, And so it was uh, not an overnight thing as far as uh, my my infatuation uh, with the region uh, developing. It it really was progressive. It evolved over a period of now almost two decades. Uh, Throughout that period, um, I ended up progressively meeting um, people from all backgrounds from India, a lot of Indian American immigrants initially, uh, being as, uh, you know, this was the country that um, the, the, that I live in, and um, encountering people from Sikh backgrounds, Muslim backgrounds, people uh, who were uh, Dalits, uh, those, those uh, formerly known as untouchables within the uh, Hindu caste system, Um, and began encountering um, a number of um, of, uh, progressive Hindus and and others. And um, just digging into and unraveling uh, the rather complicated, complex, uh, sometimes tragic uh, history of of, of modern India in, in particular and um, then um, getting involved uh, over the years in engaging with issues such as uh, the anti-caste struggle um, with caste uh, still being a, a major factor um, in the social fabric and framework of of india um, getting involved in issues here in my own country of, of advocating for congressional resolutions that sought to highlight uh, issues of human rights in India and sought to center U.S. India dialogues on raising those issues of human rights. Then uh, also um, over over the past nine years or so, um, after this current uh, Modi government came into power in India, I began to um, really shift the bulk of my attention to Researching, writing about, exposing, um, speaking about the issues of Hindu nationalism, um, the origins of the Hindu nationalist movement, um, what it's doing in India today, what its goals are, and also especially how uh, it connects to America.
0: So Khaleesi and I have both been (laughs) censored or de-boosted on Twitter. Twitter, but you have actually been banned in an entire country. So tell us how that came about and kind of how you're dealing with it and, and how that even happens.
1: Sure. Well, the, the how it happens is probably the, the easiest uh, as far as from a technical perspective uh, um, question to answer. Uh, it happens when uh, I wake up in the morning and have an email from Twitter saying that there's been a legal demand from the government of India to uh, block my account and the Twitter has complied. And then I start getting DMs from followers uh, of mine on, on Twitter um, who are living in India and writing to me and oftentimes sending me screenshots saying, What happened, Peter? Like we can't access your account anymore. Um, how am I dealing with it? And um, what's what's the what's the reason for it? Well, the reason for it is um, that I have emerged as a major thorn in the side of the current Modi regime in India. They know who I am and they don't like what I do. Um, and neither do their support base here in America like what I do. I um, I have now been banned uh, on Twitter um, in India twice this year. Um, this is this is the second time. The first time was in about mid-March um, when I put out a tweet that went semi-viral for purposes of, of the niche that I'm in. Um, got several thousand likes and, and, and retweets in which I talked about an ongoing situation at the time in the northwestern state of uh, the northwestern Indian state of Punjab where the government there was attempting to arrest an individual and alleging that uh, he was involved in things like attempted murder and, and stuff like that. And in the process of attempting to arrest him, they implemented a statewide crackdown on the uh, on, on the entire population of, of Punjab, which um, meant that they instituted curfews, they cut the internet, they had an internet blackout um, for for uh, several 10s of millions of people. Um, They conducted mass arrests of hundreds of other people um, who were peripherally um, um, connected to this gentleman that they were attempting to arrest, and so on and so forth. And I basically just put out a comment on Twitter saying that this kind of mass suspension of civil liberties is impermissible in any kind of secular democracy, and that there is no excuse for imprisoning an entire population in order to uh, attempt to affect the arrest of a single individual. Um, That went viral, as I said, within like probably about 48 hours. um, I I woke up and found that um, my account had been withheld um, and banned in India. and I initially found that out um, because uh, people who a lot, a lot of my follower base on Twitter is India based. And many of them were DMing me and, and alerting me to the fact that they could no longer access my account. And I actually it took a couple of days on, on that occasion for me to even get the formal email from Twitter informing me that it had been banned. That lasted for about maybe six or seven weeks. And then one fine day I woke up. And I don't, uh, as I recall, I don't think I even got any notification from Twitter in this case, but I woke up and discovered a bunch of DMs from people in India saying, we can see your account again. How'd you get it back? And um, I wasn't the only one uh, who had their account banned um, in that wave. There were uh, an estimated, I think, about 120, 130 other accounts um, that were um, banned all within the same one or two day time span uh that were mostly um accounts of of Sikhs uh or or uh Punjabis mostly um um within the diaspora like us- based or UK Canada based uh, who all had their accounts similarly banned um it, it was reported on I think it I think it might have made it into into the newsweek and I think Vice covered it and some of these, some of these major international outlets, um, covered it. Well, um, so anyways, my account was restored. Um, fast forward, uh, from, um, when it was restored, I think probably about early May to now August 7, uh, between early May and August 7, um, I actually, I had a real, um, wave of of, of success uh, on on India Twitter uh in terms of my my account um grew by probably about 25 30 000 followers um from uh the time that it, my account was restored on on Twitter in in, in early May uh it to, to late June um late June I I was in Washington DC because uh Modi, as the Prime Minister of India was coming over to be hosted for a state visit in DC, and so I, I was there to protest him. Um, and um, I managed to get a, a hashtag, um, which the hashtag I used is actually escaping me at the moment. I'd have to I'd have to pull that up again to remember it. But I managed to get a hashtag about um, op- opposing Modi's visit uh, trending. Uh, on India Twitter um, within the one or two days before he even arrived in in the US. Um, I I did a quick little photo op with with some posters uh, comparing Modi to Hitler and um, accusing Biden of enabling Modi's fascism and uh, did that in front of the White House, like maybe two days before Modi arrived in country, popped that up on Twitter. I think that got within the first day or two that, that got like 3 million impressions it got 40 50,000 likes and, and retweets got covered in in Indian media um just prior to to Modi's arrival so i was i was drawing a lot of negative attention to modi um and um getting a lot more um a lot more uh, uh traction in, in spreading um awareness of, of opposition to him uh, in India itself um after my account was was restored from the first ban and then um after that um within about a month after that June from June 22 when Modi visited um to uh, I think about July 25 um I again uh, managed to um kind of make some waves. Um, when I launched a hunger strike um, targeted uh, with a a demand towards um, the the key member of of U.S. Congress responsible for inviting Modi uh, to um, address a joint session of U.S. Congress back in June. And I launched this hunger strike and uh, conducted it for about nine days. And that drew, again, um, quite a high level uh, of awareness, Um, got a lot of attention uh, back in India, got covered by some uh, mainstream media here in in the US, Um, made uh, quite a mark uh, because uh, for several days, um, I actually was conducting the strike uh, within the Congressman's District in California and um, even um, got a chance to attend a constituent town hall event um, where uh, hosted by this congressman where um, i questioned him on camera about why he refused to concede to the uh, demands my hunger strike and so uh, then again made a lot of waves so after after this first ban um uh, came back i was again able to be uh to, to, Reach and and um uh, to, to reach an Indian audience um which is crucial in in what I do because um among many other things it provides a huge amount of encouragement uh to these uh Indian um, dissidents uh, or dissenters to to the regime who otherwise um, are themselves uh, oftentimes unable to raise their own voices, uh, because they face uh, the threat of um, arrest, or worse, if they do so. Well, I concluded this hunger strike, like I said, drew, drew a lot of attention, and it drew a lot of attention, actually, just uh, within a few days of this Congressman uh, Ro Khanna out of California, leading a congressional delegation to India. Um, a formal congressional delegation to India in which he met with uh, high-level members of the Indian government, including, I believe, uh, uh, on that trip, Modi himself. Um, And uh, so really kind of threw, uh, cast a shadow um, over over, uh, his upcoming visit, um, really began um, sending a lot of negative vibes towards towards the Modi regime and... um, spreading uh, awareness also here with that specific campaign that I was I was running at that time among uh, an American like a broad uh, non-Indian American Christian population well that preceded prefaced um me again waking up on August 7 and discovering that my account was once more banned um due to a demand from the Indian government with no specifics about um, them offering them, either the Indian government or Twitter, offering a rationale for the reason behind the ban other than simply that um, apparently the Indian government doesn't think that I have a uh, right to exist in their country on Twitter. Uh, they they haven't uh, specified in any way that they, they claim that I've violated Indian law. They haven't specified in any way which Indian law. Um, Twitter uh, has not given any recourse or uh, course of action for me to take in order to attempt to comply with Indian law so my account can be restored. And as it stands, I am now um, almost a month into my second uh, Twitter ban of this year and sitting, uh, waiting and hoping that um, just as previously happened, that maybe there's a chance that this will just again quietly be be lifted by by Twitter, you know, after it's been un, held in place for some time. So so we'll see. Now wrapping up uh, in response to how I'm dealing with it, um I am dealing with it by attempting to um continue using the other uh, platforms um that I have already developed, you know, my mailing list, my my Substack, um my my Instagram, my YouTube, and developing new ones. Um, I just launched a a podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, which you can find on Apple Podcasts. Just uh, look up DOSA, D-O-S-A, and it'll pop right up, or or my name. And uh, that Apple Podcasts, uh, from what I understand, does not ban me in India. Uh, So I I have plenty of Indian listeners listeners on that. And um, then um, I am, Beyond that, uh, continuing to, to do my work, uh to, to research, write, and um realize that un- although unfortunately um my reach is uh on Twitter, certainly extremely throttled now because uh, such a bulk of my following is in India. Um, but that um there is a eager uh audience uh here um in the rest of the world, uh, and certainly here in my own country, the US, um, that is ready and waiting to hear about these issues of what's happening in India, about violations of human rights uh, ramping up in India, about how there's an impending genocide of minorities in in India, and um, about how a lot of that is linked to us here in America. So I'm about ready. in the next week or so to hit the road, I have a couple of speaking invitations. I'll be going uh, traveling, um, traveling uh, to Texas, traveling to North Carolina, uh, traveling probably to, to Maryland and Washington, DC, um, meeting with, uh, speaking to, uh, especially Indian American audiences, um, but also meeting with elected officials and, and that sort of thing
0: you I so I want to back up because you mentioned Modi a couple of times on um, for someone like me who's quite ignorant about in politics inside interior politics in India I you know about the foreign policy but so I you know I've heard of uh, the violence uh, in Gujarat uh even sometimes called a genocide um I believe that some people some uh, observers even said that the events did meet the legal definitions of genocide, um, with Modi kind of uh, taking the blame in the public arena, but then being absolved of the guilt by the Supreme Court of India, kind of like we investigate ourselves and found no wrongdoing. But can you kind of go through this sort of violence in Gujarat, how the government's involved or how they're not involved or why aren't we why aren't we in the west hearing about it um, because of india's allyship or 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 what what is it because it's there um if you google it it comes right into your face it's not hidden but nobody's really talking about it
1: sure uh what happened in gujarat was in i think february 28 of 2002 until march one or March, March, March two of, of two thousand and two, I believe, February, March uh, of uh, two thousand and two. Um, I would call it a, a pogrom uh, at minimum, um, and it lasted for about three days. Um, what happened was, and I'm going to have to back up and, and lay a little bit of groundwork for for your listeners. Um, what happened was um, that there are these Hindu nationalists outfits in India, um, specific organizations um, which promotes uh, this this ideology. Um, the main one is called the uh, Rashtriya Swayamsevak Song, or, or RSS. And this RSS organization was was founded in 1925, almost 100 years ago, as a paramilitary organization that is all male. It's armed. It's uniformed. Uh, it conducts uh, uh, paramilitary drills. Uh, conducts um, uh, paramilitary marches uh, that we've seen, uh, you could um, uh, probably um, visualize it uh, similar to something like uh, Hamas uh, marches or uh, Hez- Hezbollah uh, marches um, that look very similar to what um, the RSS uh, does. It, it conducts marches through through cities and, and that sort of thing. Um, it conducts uh, ideological training Um, and it also, um, works to place its members, um, who are Hindu nationalist uh, devotees into, uh, positions of, of, um, society and politics, like, uh, the RSS works to place its members into the police forces, into, uh, educational systems, into, um, into, um, well, basically, a- any bureaucratic system uh, that you could that you could envision. Over the past hundred years, it's been doing this, and the RSS is devoted to a couple of goals. It's devoted to the goal of turning India into a uh, official Hindu nation, because it believes that India is um, always has been and always should be a nation of Hindus and only for Hindus. Uh, specifically as a, as a as a related goal to that um targets uh, for um basically like ethnic cleansing from the land um christians and and muslims in particular from indian christians and muslims in particular it um specifically views um indian christians and muslims as um as uh foreign elements uh within the land uh, because um, it, it, their their faiths, their religions originate from outside of India. Um, it views them as as internal threats to the country because they're foreign. and, and it views them as traitors uh, to the nation uh, because of, of um, not being not being Hindu. The RSS believes that in order to be a, a true patriot uh, of, of of India, you have to be a Hindu. And so, with with those two ideological um, goals of of, of turning India into an Hindu nation and um, eliminating especially Christians, Indian Christians and Muslims from the land, uh, the RSS has developed over nearly the past century and become today um, an organization which is um, approximately uh, six million members uh, strong. Uh, An organization which um, has um, seized uh, control of most uh, major institutions within the country and an organization uh, whose members are now in positions of uh, office like the the prime ministership. For instance, Modi, who I mentioned, um, is a lifelong member of the RSS who joined this paramilitary when he was about eight years old. Um, his uh his like lieutenant really of uh, this gentleman named amit shah is a lifelong member of the rss who's now the home minister of the country meaning he's in charge of internal law and order for india um believe the uh, variously the the president the vice president of, of the country are and or have been uh, members of the rss and um recent counts in the past couple of years have estimated that about of the uh, national cabinet um, are all um, members, or all are, or have been members of this RSS organization. Now, within, uh, leading up to Gujarat 2002, within this framework of of the RSS as this original Hindu nationalist uh, organization promoting that ideology, um, the RSS over the past century has founded, A host of basically subsidiary or affiliate organizations which uh serve kind of special purposes for promoting the rss's hindu nationalist ideology within um various uh distinct um fields there's a lot of them um and uh it's kind of an alphabet soup for for people that are new to this issue and so i'm not going to get into that too much um but in order to grasp uh, the way that it's worked and also to talk about Gujarat 2002, uh, there's a couple major ones which have to be um, named. So, for instance, the RSS is like the original mothership organization of the Hindu nationalist movement founded in 1925. Um, shortly, uh, uh, about, uh, I think about 10 years or so later, they founded a student organization for the universities uh, called the ABVP. Um, In the 1960s, they founded, uh, like, a cultural or religious wing called the VHP, and then in the 1980s, uh, they founded um, a couple of other groups, one group called the Bajrang Dal, when this Bajrang Dal, founded in the 80s, is, like, the youth wing of the VHP, which is the cultural religious wing of the RSS. And then in the 1980s, big important one here, um, the RSS founded the BJP as its political wing, which is the party to which Modi belongs. And so the uh, VHP and the Bajong Dal uh, in particular have actually been, as far as um, RSS anti-minority violence, typically uh, the kind of the foot soldiers who are the the ones at the forefront engaging in the actual shedding of blood, um, and that's what happened in two thousand and two. In two thousand and two, um, Modi uh, had just become um, chief minister of the state of Gujarat, uh, which is um, in um, eastern east, kind of eastern eastern India. And uh, chief minister is basically it's, it's like the it's the head of state of of, of the state like the the governor of a state for for uh equivalent for those of us in America Modi had been in office (laughs) as the chief minister for I think about four or five months at the time um he had uh when he took office um no credentials to his name no claim to fame other than that he had been a lifelong member of the RSS um serving uh since the age of about 21 as a full-time rss worker uh basically like a, a ideological missionary for the rss who's at their beck and call um who uh, uh does nothing except spread rss uh, do rss work go around the country, build up the organization and that, that was the only thing that Modi had done um, at the time that he actually took office um, as the chief minister of the state of Gujarat. Um, when he took office, he actually um, was uh, at that point not even um, um, elected into office. He, he was uh, appointed uh, as a replacement uh, for a um, uh, another chief minister from the same BJP party uh, who'd kind of fallen into disgrace. and. Um, then, within those first few months, um, there was this pogrom uh, against Muslims that uh, broke out. Um, what happened uh, was that there was um, a, a train of um, full of um, Hindu nationalist devotees who were returning from this one contested site, uh, returning and, um, and returning back to uh, back to Gujarat, and something happened. Um, the train was was attacked and um, it's still a dispute exactly what occurred uh, or why. but um, uh, uh, the train was attacked and set on fire. and about 50, I think almost 60 um, Hindu nationalists uh, 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 from this Hindu nationalist civilians from this from this movement um, burned alive in this train. Uh, the Modi government in the state of Gujarat uh, immediately jumped on, on the situation, initially accused um, foreign elements, they accused Pakistan of being involved, and, and, and they they cited it as an instance of, of, of cross-border international terrorism with, with, with no evidence. Um, and um, then began kind of fanning the flames of, of tension um that were naturally resulting uh as an outcome of, of this of this tragedy and um they uh began um that they, they they called for they cooperated uh with uh, this VHP organization this hindu nationalist group that's uh, the religious wing of the rss as the vhp called for a statewide shutdown as the VHP like took the bodies of these um victims their um, their charred bodies and um um paraded them uh like 50 100 miles uh or so back to the the capital of the of the state on camera treating them as martyrs um and th- during the statewide shutdown and then violence systematic violence began breaking out against uh Muslims uh in I believe about a dozen cities around the state, where for about three days, um, armed mobs um who were uh equipped with um roles of voters um that identified um which from those roles you could identify looking at the names um, for instance, where Muslims live, um, roles of voters, and uh, apparently um driving around um, in in trucks, uh, began um, targeting uh, Muslim neighborhoods um, and attacking mosques, homes, businesses, and um, pulling Muslims out into the streets and slaughtering them, um, burning them alive, hacking them to death, um, gang raping them, um, and so on and, and so forth. And um, as this occurred, um, and you know, in, in the reports uh, that emerged afterwards and the accounts from the survivors, um, what was happening uh, during this pogrom, during this, this systematic slaughter, was that the police um, in the state who were under the control of the, of the Moe government, uh, which was a BJP, the Nationalist government, the police um, either did nothing, like passively stood by and and watched the mobs or in many occasions actually um joined in the violence um when people when muslims were being attacked and attempted to fight back the police would fire on them and then um and then subdue them and then pull back and allow the 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 nationalist mobs to go in and, and that sort of thing uh the mobs were chanting slogans uh, along the way uh, over this, this three-day massacre about how the police are are, are with them um and also uh, about how um modi is with us um subsequently um when you know the the whole thing ended and and the investigations began um there were Many many different reports um, that fingered Modi as um, anywhere from as culpable on a a, a range of anywhere from um, basically being passive and allowing it to actually orchestrating it. Um, And some of the things that were were claimed um, included um, whistleblowers uh, who were from the police or senior uh, police officers. Who said that there were meetings um, held behind closed doors at the outset of the violence, uh, in which police were given orders uh, not to not to quell the violence and and not to step in and stop the stop the attackers, stop the mobs. Um, there was a uh, member of the cabinet uh, from Modi's own political party, the BJP. Who, who blew the whistle and, and basically said that um, um, Modi um, ha, was culpable, that he um, he orchestrated the violence. And, and again, this is a member of Modi's own cabinet or uh, from his own political party. Uh, gentleman was uh, uh, soon after uh, making that allegation was assassinated. Um, there were perpetrators of the violence Um, who were caught on camera in a media sting a couple of years later, uh, who belonged to organizations um, like the RSS, um, or who were uh, members of the BJP, uh, who were politicians, um, who um, on camera, on video, uh, agreed, uh, boasted about how they had participated in the violence uh, with no uh, regrets for doing so and um, and, uh, alleged that Modi um, was personally involved um, in allowing them to do it and to subsequently get away with it. And so for a long time afterwards, um, Modi was viewed as basically responsible uh, for the violence and certainly um, Uh, the U.S. government um, found the evidence compelling uh, because uh, after this 2002 pogrom in 2005, um, Modi um, was invited as a speaker to an event in the U.S. and the U.S. State Department um, responded by actually formally revoking his visa um, and coming out with a declaration that uh, they were denying him um, entry to the U.S., because at the time of this 2002 violence, being uh, the the head of the state that um, the US State Department uh, found that Modi was responsible for these egregious violations of of religious freedom. And then within India itself, especially um, within a lot of mainstream Indian media, he was was widely viewed as as the butcher of Gujarat and considered um, responsible for for the violence. Uh, for about a decade, um, there were all kinds of investigations uh, into him by different courts at varying levels, state and national level. And wrapping up, um, because now Modi is, um, as mentioned, now he's today Prime Minister of India. Uh, he's he's um, welcomed actually now in, in, in America, despite being formally banned, uh, uh, note on that uh, the ban um, on Modi's entry into the U.S. was never even actually lifted. Um, he just has a workaround today, which is that as the head of state of India, he has diplomatic immunity. And so the U.S., in order to avoid a major uh, international incident, uh, will has, has chosen not to, not to enforce the ban that they formerly placed, even though they haven't even lifted it. But with these investigations into Modi in India, uh his supporters um have spun the narrative um and basically said that well Modi was exonerated. Um the Modi got uh, the term is clean chick, they use is kind of a common uh term within within Indian um, um rhetoric. Um and that the the courts have looked at it, the supreme court has looked at it and and he's he's been he's been cleared of all wrongdoing, which is absolutely not the case. Um basically what happened was when it finally made its way up to the Supreme Court, and there was a special investigative team that was um, um formed by the Supreme Court. This team ultimately came back and uh concluded uh in their final report that there is simply not enough evidence to uh charge Modi. So he was never. He was never charged, meaning he he never went to trial. And so he he, he was never acquitted, as you would be if, if you go to trial. Um, he was never exonerated. He he was simply not charged because the conclusion was that there was there was not enough evidence to uh take him uh to court. However, um in in light of a real host of um of all the evidences that I've I've just gone through. Uh, it seems absolutely clear that modi is at absolute minimum culpable in terms of allowing the violence to happen especially considering um that the violence uh, as has been widely concluded by reports from from the us uh, government reports from uh, european governments um reports from international human rights outfits like amnesty international human rights watch that the 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 perpetrators came from these groups like the RSS, the VHP, the Dal, the BJP, all groups, which, you know, Modi, I mean, Modi himself is actually a member of of the RSS. Modi himself is actually a member of the BJP. So this violence was certainly perpetrated um, by outfits um, uh, to which Modi himself belongs. Um, And then as I've just gone through, even even the perpetrators uh, have come out and, and, Claimed responsibility for the violence and named Modi as responsible for uh, giving them a free hand to pull the violence off and, and then get away with it, uh, get away uh, with um, impunity for it afterwards.
2: Thank you so much, Peter. Um, when I've read up about the Gujarat riots, obviously there were, you know, hundreds and thousands of horrific cases of um, a murder, lynching, rape, burning, setting entire villages alight. But the one that really sticks to my mind, um, simply because it actually um, came back in a profound way last year, is the case of Bilkis Barno. Um, and if I just give a 30-second recap on that and then ask you the question. So Bilkis Bano was one of the, the women from one of these villages in Gujarat when the genocide were you know happened and um she was fleeing the village with i believe 11 members of her family she was pregnant herself her sister had just given birth she had a 3 year old child with her and the entire like all the females in the family were raped mass raped by um a gang of uh, men um, and then every single member of her family was killed, and she was left for dead. But she survived. She fought the battle of her life. Um, she went to the police, and the police, police, I believe, had those um, bodies buried very quickly of all her family members to get rid of any DNA, therefore showing their complicity in the genocide. And then she got the case transferred, I believe, from Gujarat to um, another city, Mumbai. And the Supreme Court ruled that the bodies had to be dug up for DNA evidence. And then those guys were convicted. Um And they were all given life sentences for mass rape and murder. You know, her child was killed. She miscarried. Her sister um, lost the baby that was born two days before her sister was killed after being raped. It was horrific. They were given life in prison. And then last year, they were released. Um, The case was taken back to Gujarat, where Modi still has, though he's a prime minister today, a lot of power. Um, and they were all released. But but what's horrific about this is that they weren't released as murderers and rapists. They were released from the images that I saw and the videos that I saw as heroes, um, you know, celebrated, adorned. Um, I believe some of them may have even show, like, shared a platform with BJP ministers now. So government ministers are actually, um, you know, uh, kind of... Um, sharing platforms with them to give them credibility. So please correct me if anything here is inaccurate, but what I want to ask you about is just a couple of things. So first, there are now, I see so many stories of rape being used, uh, weaponized as a tool for this kind of um, impending genocide, number one. And number two, I don't see there being... um, the kind of government... Action against this. There's there's no kind of even rhetoric around it. There's just there's nothing. There's silence. It's like go and do it. It's fine as long as you don't do to it. Do it to, you know, women of the um the the upper class, the people who who do believe in the RSS, the Hindu ideology people, but do it to the minority communities, be that Dalits, be that you know. Um, recently we've seen in Manipur the Kuki community or. Um, you know, be that Muslim women. So I just want you to talk a little bit about that, please, because I think that's really profound what's happening right now in India, if you could.
1: Sure. Well, yes. Um, as far as uh, what you're saying about the Bilkis Bano case, uh, everything that you said, I don't believe that's that's accurate. Um, Bilkis Bano uh, was one of the survivors of this 2002 Bagram in and Gujarat. And She was, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I think about 11 members of her family or so were were fleeing altogether from the the violence. And as I recall, seven uh, of them ended up actually being killed, including her three-year-old daughter who was killed in front of her. Bill Caspano, who at the time, as I recall, was pregnant, was gang raped uh, by, by, excuse me, by the mob. And then, Although there was a lot of impunity uh, for uh, many, if not most, of the perpetrators of, of all of this violence, some of those who were convicted and imprisoned included Bill Gaspano's uh, attackers. Who I mean, they murdered her family. They they, they gang raped her. You know, they 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 slaughtered her three-year-old daughter in front of her. And last year, um, they got early release um, uh, because um, of I guess good behavior. Uh, in prison, um, and despite the fact that they were serving uh, life sentences, and um, to add insult to injury, they were released last year on August 15, which is India's Independence Day. Um, so, uh, Happy Birthday, India! Uh, we're going to we're going to set free a, a gang of uh, rapists and murderers then when they walked out of jail they were yes greeted as heroes um and their their relatives were there um garlanding them with flowers kissing their feet giving them sweets and and giving them a real warm homecoming ceremony um as though as though um as though they are heroes which uh, is um as i'll get to in a minute uh, so illustrative of um the environment uh, and the climate of, of uh, hatred, which has um, taken over in India uh, today and uh, over the past nine years since the Modi regime came into power. Well, and as you mentioned, uh, since then, um, they have uh, these these men uh, who were uh, uh, walked out of jail after being sentenced to life for murder and rape, the some of them have been um, at events, uh, ceremonies uh, in the company on stage, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, members of the BJP elected officials from um, both uh, um, the state uh, legislature, uh, uh, from, as well as um, from the, the national parliament. This incident does, yes, really exemplify this kind of weaponization of rape, which is rather central uh, to especially the Hindu nationalist ideology, the Hindu nationalist ideology, which uh, currently has an iron grip on India. And it's rooted uh, actually um, in uh, manifestos uh, written by some of the original Hindu nationalist ideologues Tracing back to the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Um, and specifically, um, there was one um, manifesto written by a man named Vidi Savarkar, who is like the, the ideological godfather of the entire modern internationalist movement. In uh, one of these manifestos, uh, Vidi Savarkar um, talks about very openly uh, how rape should be weaponized. He advocates for it um with this he does this within the framework of like this historical grievance that um Hindu nationalism has and and this is one of the things about Hindu nationalism um which um, makes it such a mirror of of the fascist ideology and I know it's um you know popular and cliche to throw around the the term fascist you know uh to apply it to anything that, that we disagree with Um, But it is, uh, in the case of Hindu nationalism, uh, completely apropos and uh, 110% accurate to use, uh, unlike almost any other uh, usage of the term that I could think of in in, in the modern world. The reason is that Hindu nationalism and the RSS um, originated um, in the 1920s, 1930s in India, at the exact same time that the Nazis uh, were um, originating and, and developing in Germany, and that the the fascists Mussolini's uh, black shirts and um, his his movement over in Italy was was formulating, and as the Hindu nationalist organizations um, were founded and, and developed in, in historical parallel with those original European fascist groups. The Hindu nationalist ideologues were very well aware of what was happening in Europe and um, looked over at, at the development of the fascists in Italy and the Nazis in Germany and overtly in their manifestos, openly, blatantly pointed to it that those European fascist movements as a model for what they wanted to develop in India and then variously elaborated um and uh, explicated their ideology um uh, in, in ways where they uh specifically called out aspects of the of the European fascist ideology which uh they admired wanted to emulate etc including um very specifically pointing to the way that they saw Jews being treated in Germany um as being what they considered to be a model for how especially Muslims ought to be treated in India. Um, in so many words, actually this man, Barkar Sabarkar, um, in so many words actually said that the goal was to treat Indian Muslims the same way that German Jews uh, are treated. So getting back to the weaponization of weaponization of race aspect of all of this, this Godfather of the Hindu nationalist movement, B. Savarkar, uh, who, you know, as I just said, com- you know, explicitly compared um, the, desi- the desire to, uh, um, or explicitly compared the treatment of, of German Jews to how he wanted Indian Muslims to be treated. Um had a lot of mirrored ideas. Um, uh, I had a lot, of, a lot of ideas ideologically that, that that mirrored the fascist ideology you know like like um the, the state is supreme above all else there's no greater um um goal for a citizen in a country uh to aspire to than to sacrifice their life on behalf of the state um that um uh, we need uniformity conformity etc etc blah 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 and the there's been this like lost golden age that we need to restore um which certainly in uh context of nazi germany was what they were aspiring for uh, they wanted to restore the, the lost golden age of germany when uh, the holy roman empire for instance and and get back to those those good old times when when everything was perfect in germany you know was germany was uber in context of india the Hindu nationalist ideologues like Vidi Savarkar had this view that thousands of years ago, that India was this vast, sprawling, idyllic, um, um, utopian empire, this glorious Indian empire, which had um, been lost due to things like, from their perspective, the invasion of outsiders um, who came in and destroyed that 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 glorious Indian culture, uh, glorious Hindu culture, which once dominated the, 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 the region and the land. And V. Savarkar and um laid the groundwork for um spe- what, what still dominates the Hindu nationalist mindset today, this, this idea that uh the primary enemy of, of India is is Islam, is Muslims, um, identifying um uh historical events from the 1100s the 1500s etc in which there had been um conquering forces um from central asia uh who were muslim uh who, who came in um and um conquered india or the indian subcontinent more accurately and uh, ruled um, large parts of that region for some hundreds of years before um, they were finally uh, overthrown by the British uh, coming in and colonizing India or the Indian subcontinent. That historical reality is um, something that V.D. Savarkar pointed to uh, as the, the chief historical grievance of the Indian nationalist movement that Muslims came in from their perspective and subjugated us Hindus and um, invaded, occupied, and dominated us for hundreds of years and did things like mistreated our women, dishonored our women, raped our women. Um, And that therefore, in order to kind of, um, reset the balance uh in order to in, a, in order to pay them back and and restore our last golden age we hindus we need to do stuff like treat the muslims living in india uh the same way that they supposedly treated us hundreds of years ago when they were subjugating us and so from that perspective uh vidi savarkar in in his ideology written uh, down in like the 1920s 30s 40s as he's all simultaneously looking over at and and admiring the European fascists, he specifically articulates um, and advocates for Hindu nationalists in the Indian subcontinent to do things like weaponized rape by systematically targeting uh, Muslim women um, for sexual violence. And that ideology i mean you know it's one thing to have an ideology it's another thing to put it into practice but we've seen that being now almost 100 years later um as this hindu nationalist movement which was formulated way back when has today taken over the republic of india we've seen that ideology being put into practice of manifesting in incidents of actual weaponization of of, of rape uh, especially against minority uh religious minority women like in the case of Gulkasbano um in 2002 in gujarat or um more recently um in the case in um the northeastern states of, of Manipur, um where still ongoing uh, where in in may uh may 3rd so june july august september 4 months ago today Um, Four months ago in the northeastern Indian state of Manipur, violence uh, broke out, basically a a massacre erupted um, against a uh, Christian majority tribal community um, um, with the perpetrators being uh, paramilitary organizations that um, are uh, sympathetic to and have been groomed by the RSS um, and the violence being um, perpetrated against these Tribal Christians by these paramilitary groups that um, are links to the um, state governments of Manipur that are operating um, with um, uh, support from um, the state police forces um, and that basically have have the backing of of, of the BJP-controlled state government there in Manipur um, and the silence of sanction of the um national uh, BJP government in in Delhi and in one of those in one specific case of violence um this 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 violence has been ongoing for about four months now so targeting primarily tribal Christians um with the backing of the BJP state government it's seen um anywhere from a hundred to a couple hundred or possibly more uh, Christians murdered um, it's seen uh, three, four, five hundred churches uh, torched, burned down, uh, thousands of homes destroyed, tens and tens of thousands of people uh, displaced, uh, sent into like either either uh, fleeing uh, to find refuge outside of the state or sent into into camps. Um, there's been a lot of sexual violence that has accompanied it. Quite a number of different incidents. Um, but one in particular that uh, was caught on the video and that went viral, got international uh, press, and um, really kind of shown a spotlight uh, on the ongoing uh, atrocity, ongoing ongoing massacre there in Montefiore. And that was an incident which occurred uh, in the early days of uh, the violence beginning in, in May, of this year, uh, but did not actually um, um, have the video of uh, that violence, uh, which occurred in early May, um, emerge until actually I think July 19. Uh, so, uh, May, almost two months uh, after the after the incident occurred, is when the video was finally leaked and international press picked it up. It was an incident where two women from this tribal Christian community, who were Uh, surrounded by a mob of uh, apparently as many as uh, hundreds of of, of people, uh, a mob which included, uh, as I recall, also some women, um, were stripped naked, um, paraded down a road, and um, sexually abused um, while uh, on camera. And then off camera, um, they were taken into a field uh, and... Uh, either one or both of the women were gang raped and uh, believe the brother of one of the women um who who was who was apparently there uh, was murdered by the mob. The women uh, subsequently, when this video of the attack emerged, which to note, this video was recorded by the perpetrators um who had no hesitation, um no fear of of filming themselves committing this crime on camera. The women subsequently, uh, when the uh issue um you know the video emerged and the issue drew drew mass attention, uh, reported that um before they ended up in the hands of the mob, they had actually been in the hands of the police. And the police had picked the women up from a, a nearby village and taken them off into some rural area where this mob had assembled. And in the words of the women, um, the, the police handed us over into the hands of, the mob. this is one of the, the most notable and, 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 um, um, uh, incident in terms of how much press it's, uh, it's gained, but it's, it's only one example of, of many, um, other similar attacks, gang rapes, um, uh, which have been occurring in this ongoing, and I emphasize ongoing, um situation um in in Manipur. and um again uh bringing things to the modern day you know the the, the, the this present year this, this present past few months um back from the 2000 back from the 2002 incident in Gujarat that we were talking about bringing things forward to the modern day really exemplifies um how the Hindu nationalist movement weaponizes rape um and uh in, in 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 terms of its ideology and then implements that in, in terms of, of committing atrocities in the streets right now today um how how it weaponizes that um um against religious minority women um how uh there's uh generally when uh it's a situation where the hindu nationalist movement controls the state forces um it's generally a situation where the uh state forces are complicit uh, in in the attacks and
0: uh, so on and so forth. If just to, one last question. I'm going to try to squeeze it in. So um, to focus more on your very active work in the United States, um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about your hunger strike. So I wanted to come back to that. Um, it was a nine day hunger strike. I believe it was a zero calorie hunger strike. And this was after doing a road show across the across the country. So could you tell us a little bit more about the roadshow, how the hunger strike came about, how it went, and what you did consume while you were on it?
1: Sure. It was a zero-calorie hunger strike uh, for for nine days, I think, technically about. By the time I actually broke it, it was probably about nine and a half days. Um, And, um, well, it wasn't... uh, Technically, immediately after I did a road show, um, I, I, I do road shows frequently, all the time. Um, uh, last year, I was uh, on the road for probably about three months out of the year, uh, traveling around maybe six or seven different uh, states in, in the US. And I uh, go on the road um, at the invitation of local Indian American communities uh, throughout the US. Excuse um, me i for instance um last year was in texas i think i was in in the dallas region of texas for about three weeks in december the reason I, in that situation that i was in texas was because of a specific incident which had occurred um, in the dallas region where a local nonprofit organization which is um, a hindu nationalist organization Based in in Dallas area, had hosted a fundraiser um, in which the stated goal of their fundraiser included things like raising money to support the demolition of churches back in India. And that uh, the fact that a nonprofit organization in America. Could so brazenly uh, host a fundraiser on our free American soil to support the to support basically attacks on uh, the rights of religious minorities back in India was uh, unsurprisingly rather shocking uh, to um, the Indian American population in Dallas, which is quite a sizable one. So um, they invited me uh, to to go out there and um raise awareness about that uh, particular incident and um i went out there and um that incident was uh, one the one of the silver linings of it uh, is that it led to a lot of uh, interfaith uh, cooperation uh between um christians and muslims and sikhs and and hindus and 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 other people uh, all of indian origin um and so I um, did a lot of things, uh, went out there and um, went to the city council meeting in the city um, where this fundraiser had actually been hosted, a city called Frisco, Texas. And one of the things we have here in almost every uh, city uh, council in America is a segment uh, where they open up the floor for a period of time during the meeting for public comment uh where any member of the public and you don't even have to necessarily be a resident of the city can sign up to speak for generally about two to three minutes on any issue of concern to that member of the public as long as it has you know something to do with the city and so we went uh to uh that frisco city council meeting and uh, I signed up, as did about a dozen other people, uh, Sikhs, Christians, uh, Indian Christians, Indian Muslims, uh, uh, Indian Christian pastor from the area, etc to speak in the public comments and uh, demand the city to announce um, that fundraiser that had been hosted in their city and to just generally call attention to this, uh, uh, the city's attention to the fact that uh, this was happening in their backyard. We packed out the City Council chambers with probably about uh, 100 120 uh, other people who uh, were there, they didn't speak, but they were there in support of us who did speak over the next couple of weeks, we, we did things like um, organized um, a rally in, uh in front of the City Council, um, where I I was one of the speakers um, probably had 100 150 people at that rally. Um, we organized a press conference of 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 Christians uh, again uh, in front of the uh, city council. And uh, then, while I was there in town, um had some kind of closed door meetings alongside in in in, in uh, cooperation with um the Indian American community, uh, had some closed door meetings with elected officials, with um uh, members of law enforcement, um, that sort of thing in order to, Um, At least draw their attention uh, to the issue, make sure they were aware of how deep a concern uh, it, it is for so much of the local Indian American community there in Dallas and urge them to, if possible, take some kind of an action. And then in addition to that, um, I did something else while I was there, which I I often do on a lot of my other roadshows, which is I went around to uh, several other local cities, including the city of Dallas itself, and uh, signed up uh, to speak in the public comments and spoke um, at that time um, in context of, of how this issue had just happened with this um fundraiser by this nonprofit profit for raising money to send overseas to support the demolition of churches in india and then more broadly you know using that as an opportunity to more broadly uh raise awareness uh within the city about how um they need to know that this is not the only local hindu nationalist organization operating in america or in this in in, in, in this region that um they're are actually this there are actually much more mainstream internationalist organizations that are actually more likely uh, to be uh, approaching um, you the city um, and seeking your um, your engagement and seeking your stamp of approval in various ways. Um, and uh, you know I would cite many examples of, of how that had already happened with some of these uh, other more mainstream internationalist organizations. Specifically one called the HSS, which is the international wing of the RSS, which you know, maybe if we have time to sometime someday soon do a part two, I would love to highlight what the HSS is, how they operate, and how a lot of my work has been uh oriented around exposing them because they operate in around the world and, and in the US as as I said, the international wing of this rss paramilitary back in india and so i would i would go and i and i spoke at city councils about that and so in doing my roadshows and i've got um i've got one or two coming up uh, this month actually i've got one coming up um, this week um i'll be in north carolina in doing these um what i what i do is it, it I always do it, I uh, go out at the invitation of the local Indian American community. I oftentimes do it, um, when there's been a specific incident that has, has, occurred. Um, and I will do things like I'll go and tour around, um, the, uh, local city councils, uh, picking which city to go to based off of criteria, like, um, has this city, um, had some kind of, a engagement with, or platforming of this, this HSS organization, this uh us wing of the rss has the city platform phss at some point um if they have i definitely want to try and speak at that city um is the city holding a, a meeting uh in, in in a time frame that, that fits with the time that i'm already going to be there um and uh is it a major city because i do prefer to speak at major cities you know like it was awesome getting the chance to speak at Dallas you know, I've gotten the chance in the past to uh, last year to speak, uh, at the, uh, Chicago city council. Um, I've spoken at Houston. Um, I've spoken at this point, I think at, uh, um, I spoke at Annapolis, Maryland, uh, um, this, this year, I've spoken at, I think a couple of, of capital cities in, in different States. And then I also do stuff like, um, I, I, attend, um, like I said, some of these closed door meetings organized uh, by and in, in collaboration with the local Indian American uh, community, uh, meeting with elected officials and and people like that, or, or, or bureaucrats civil service. I um, also speak at rallies um, and help to organize protests, depending on if there's an issue that, that deserves to be protested, uh, speak at seminars, um, Uh, Last year, one of the things I did was uh, I spoke in uh, Chicago region in Illinois, at probably about uh, 10 or a dozen uh, mosques, Uh, just did kind of a a lecture circuit at mosques, uh, speaking um, for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour uh, about the issue of um, Hindu nationalism, educating people about what it is, what Hindu nationalists are doing in India, and how it connects to us here in America, how we have uh, American international organizations that are serving as a support base for for the movement back in India. And um, coming up, um, as I go to North Carolina this week, one of the things that I'll be doing is, um, I I believe that the local community is organizing a, a book launch for me for my new book, Saffron America. Um, and then um, I'm joining a, uh, a seminar uh, panel of, of I'll be one of three speakers, I believe, uh, this coming weekend. Um, and then um, lo- looking forward to hopefully uh, also speaking at a uh, couple of couple of major uh, cities. Don't want to name drop them just yet until after I've done them. But a couple of major cities and in the states which uh, are holding um, city council meetings uh, while i'm there and going and attending them and, and just kind of educating them um, about um, the problem of hindu nationalism and its presence here in america
2: yeah thank I, i'd like to thank you so much because um what you've just shared um on this podcast um across what what you've done to raise awareness of the atrocities across India, but more importantly, the projection you're giving to the future um, of where this could go and raise awareness, not only of what's happened, but where it's going in the future and the influence that's growing of the RSS Hindutva ideology, especially across America. I know that this is the end of the first podcast with you. Um, Didi and I would like to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We would like to then, in the second part, continue talking about the two books that you have actually written and published. One of them very recently um, called Saffron America and the first one called Saffron Fascist. So I look forward to speaking to you about those in the coming podcast.
1: If I can, if I can just uh, actually technically I've got four full-length books um written, published, and uh two or three short, more booklet type books of, of, of anywhere from 40 to 60, 70 pages. Um as mentioned at the outset, um by I believe by Didi, uh, you were talking about it. Um some of my books um, include um topics um related to south asian issues uh which are not dealing with hindu nationalism um i've written i've written a booklet about um about gandhi uh, for instance which is rather critical of him um, uh, examining um some events in his life and going through um some of his writings Um, i've written uh last year i wrote a a booklet called india at a crossroads um uh, hindu nationalist uh Um, efforts to eliminate or eradicate Christianity, um, which covers um, the Hindu nationalist view of uh, Indian Christians, uh, their their, um, uh, persecution of Indian Christians, um, the reasons behind it, um, the ways in which it's manifesting today, um, discusses ways in which how there's been past persecution, but but, um, explains why the present persecution is so much more severe, how it's so much more severe, etc. I've written a book called, um, Sikh Caucus, um, um, Siege in Delhi, Surrender in Washington, um, which is, uh, been a bestseller among, um, the, uh, global Sikh, uh, diaspora, um, and which is, um, delving into a, a rather niche issue, um, sort of sold surprisingly well, uh, considering it's uh, such a niche issue, but um, an issue dealing with um this um special interest uh grouping that we have in US Congress uh called a caucus, um, and uh talking about um the American Sikh Congressional Caucus and kind of dissecting it, its uh its origins, its inner workings, and um coming to very critical conclusions about it um and then i've got um another book this was actually my first one co-authored it back in 2017 called captivating the simple-hearted um which is basically a a historical um examination of the the origins of the Sikh religion and how um, it originated uh, to a large extent uh, more as a social movement, um, also as a religion, but but more as a social movement um, to promote um, um, equality and to oppose caste in the Indian subcontinent. That book um, has actually been translated at this point, I believe, into uh, about half a dozen different Indian origin languages, languages like Punjabi, Hindi, Tamil, Telugu, uh Malayalam etc then uh, my two books which are primarily about the Hindu nationalist movement um my first one came out in 2020 it's called on fascists um india's hindu nationalist rulers and that book is really basically the um key primer um to introduce a reader to the issue of what is Internationalism. What is the RSS? What have what what are their goals? What do they believe? What have they done in, in in the past? And how have they developed over the past hundred years to the point that they've taken over India? And then my newest book, which dropped on August seven, um, the exact same day that um, I also got once again um, banned uh, on Twitter in India. Um, is called saffron America India's Hindu nationalist project at work in the U.S and that's uh, I think my longest to date it's about 370 pages it's a comprehensive overview of the topic of Hindu nationalism from the through the lens of what is the Hindu nationalist movement doing in America and how are they how is the American Hindu nationalist um family of organizations supporting the movement uh back in india
0: well i want to thank you both once again for joining us and all of you our listeners peter please let our listeners know where they can find you on maybe on twitter (laughs) and all your other platforms
1: well hopefully you can find me on twitter i'm on twitter just uh, under my name on pretty much every platform search my name i'm on twitter um youtube facebook instagram and now on apple podcasts and with my newest um uh with my uh, not just newest but my first podcast uh releasing uh, a couple of weeks ago i've got episodes coming out every friday and it's called dialoguing on south asia with peter friedrich um it's a kind of a long form Uh, About an hour, hour and 15 minutes per episode where I get in deep uh, with my guests talking, not just topically, but also uh, from a human interest perspective about uh, the background of my guests and and what got them involved and the things that they're involved in, which typically most of my guests have some kind of a connection to issues of um, human rights or religious freedom um, in South Asia. And then beyond that, um, you can find my books on Amazon um, in print and in Kindle, uh, in print, uh, on almost every major Amazon country store, uh, which, uh, offers, uh, the service, uh, just look me up, Peter Friedrich, or if you happen to be, uh, able to remember the specific name of one of my books, such as the latest one, Saffron America, plug in Saffron America, either on Google or on Amazon, and you'll find it there for sale on Amazon. And, uh, Hope the people um, um, give it a read because um, not to not to sound my own horn, but uh, just to be uh, humbly truthful. Um, My books on the Hindu nationalist movement are books unlike any others. There's a lot that has been written on Hindu nationalism, on the RSS, on the BJP, a lot of good books, uh, uh, authors of whom I owe a great debt of gratitude to uh, for their work because I've used it uh, extensively, quoted them extensively, but most of them are academically oriented and are not easily accessible um, for your average reader or especially for your average reader who's not already somewhat familiar with issues um, related to India. My books on um, the RSS, BJP, my books on the Hindu nationalist movement, in particular, the Saffron America, this latest one, are written um, and intended to be basically like pop uh, primers for your average educated reader from anywhere in the world um, to be able to um, easily digest uh, a complicated issue and uh, they're books that are intended to be highly accessible uh, for uh, any any English speaking um, audience um, who's not already aware of what's happening in India. And they are, and this is the best compliment that I've ever received. And anybody that is a writer, I think, would know why. Uh, they are books which I've been told by um, a reader in the past who is uh, India based, um, that my books read like fiction, which to me means that they are engaging they're not dry they're oftentimes hopefully page turners um that even though they're talking about uh real world non-fiction issues well the truth is stranger than fiction and um i hope that readers find them to be gripping
0: well this has been another wonderful episode of the dd geopolitics podcast i'm sarah with my wonderful guest host khaleesi and this is just Part one of our time with Peter. So stay around for next.
2: Thank you.